hello again. Like I said, we've been in Esther uh, since the fall, so we kind of kicked off our fall series here in Esther and have been going through very slowly, actually, really wanting to kind of dive in and get the meat of this book. Now, Esther obviously is Old Testament narrative, and it can be challenging at times preaching and kind of studying Old Testament narrative because oftentimes it's hard to really pull and really understand, see what's going on and not turn it into just some moralistic type of message. You know, do good things and good things will happen to you or just love God and everything will work out in the end. You know, they make for good Sunday school messages, these stories, but sometimes they're really difficult to really dive into and say, where is the gospel here? Beyond just a moralistic message, where do we see the gospel come in? So every time that I've, uh, I've spoken here during this series, I've given different uh, hints, different clues, different uh, suggestions for how to read Old Testament narrative well to be able to understand what's really going on behind the surface, to really get uh, the messaging and what, what we're really to take from that from a gospel perspective. So uh, right off the bat, early on, at the very first, uh, very first message uh, in Esther 1, we started off, I challenged us to recognize the background harmony. I played sort of that drone that oftentimes we'll play in a, in a song when we're doing worship and say, what that drone does, that sort of that hum, if you've ever noticed it in our worship sets, is it sort of brings everything together, kind of is the glue that holds everything together. It's just one note that sort of hums underneath the background, bringing the whole thing together. And I said, a lot of times in Old Testament narrative, there's a hum there's these overarching themes that are happening. And if you listen for the hum, even though the melody, we know the melody of most of these Old Testament stories. We grew up on them as kids. If you were in Sunday school, we know the story of Esther. We know the melody line of what's going on and the main characters and the main plot twists. And yet, if we listen, there's a hum underneath it all. It's the hum of a God who's never mentioned and yet is divinely moving and shaping and, and, and guiding his will throughout the whole thing. A, a, a book of the Bible, the only book of the Bible where God is not mentioned and yet he's everywhere. It's the hum underneath, understanding what's going on. A few weeks back, I said uh, one of the ways that you kind of try to understand what's going on, try to understand what the author's trying to do is putting yourself in the character's position, put, the, put yourself in their shoes and ask, would I have done that had I been in that situation? We played this game a few weeks ago, what would you do? And we put ourselves in Esther's shoes as we wondered why she wouldn't make her request to the king. This, what I read this morning is her third time before. The king has had to ask her many to three times before she finally spits it out. And we asked the question, well, if we were in Esther's shoes, everything worked out perfectly for her that first time. He'd been, she'd been called into his presence and everything was going well and he offered her half the kingdom and what do you want and it'll be granted to you, O king. He was very favorable to her. And we, we said to ourselves, well, why not right then and there? Didn't that seem like the perfect moment? And we recognize that when a character does something unexpected, it gives clues to its meaning. We saw that she was actually being wise in that moment. She knew when to speak and when not to. She knew when to hold her tongue and allow the enemy to reveal himself for himself, what his main motives are. And we ask questions of ourselves 
about when we speak and when does the wisdom of the Lord give us the power and the timing to say the right thing at the right time. Today, I'm going to offer one more, and this one's my favorite. And this one you should recognize because we've played this one before. This is recognizing similarities in other stories. This might be the prime one we do. A lot of times in Old Testament narrative, you'll read the story, particularly if it's further on in the story of the Bible, if it's further, uh, sort of later on in the Old Testament, you begin to read these stories and you go, I've, I've heard that before. There's details, there's words, there's quotes, there's situations. And if we really pay attention, we go, where have we, we play this game called, where have I heard this before? So today we're going to play it again. I'm going to highlight what's been going on in Esther. I'm going to give you a few things specifically that Esther says in our passage. A few specific words, a few specific quotes. And then we're going to ask ourselves, Haven't I heard that before? So let's play along as I do that. Listen carefully and you'll hear Esther's words echo from the words of another. So again, after her initial preamble in our passage this morning, she has this kind of this initial preamble and then she says first, she says, her and her people have been sold into slavery. For I and my people have been sold as male and female slaves. Now, that's an interesting way to say it because at that point, Esther nor the Jews were actually in literal slavery at the time. She frames it that way, but that's not actually literally what's happening, yet she frames it in this sort of uh, slavery motif. And what people have said is this seems to stem from Haman's actual request before the king in chapter 3, a little bit earlier. If you remember Haman's request to the king, he wants to destroy the Jews, and this is how he frames it. He says it like this, if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Now, even though the king waves it, Haman is willing to pay a blood price for their destruction. In a way, this idea of being sold into slavery is actually an apt description. There is someone who has a a, a bounty, sort of a, a blood price, on the Jews' head, a debt that they cannot pay. 10,000 talents, to be exact. Now, this detail seems important because Mordecai makes it important. One chapter later, when he's describing to Esther what is going on and why she needs to step up and take responsibility and stick her neck out in order to save the Jews, he says it, it says it like this. Mordecai told Esther, and it says him there, but Mordecai's talking through uh, sort of a go-between. So he's really talking to Esther. Mordecai uh, tells Esther told Esther everything that happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. So the author of Esther wants us to know that. 10,000 talents, and then Mordecai decides, I'm going to tell Esther what's going on, and I need Esther to know the exact amount that he was willing to to pay 10,000 talents. 
And moreover, what's interesting is this word, have been sold. This is actually a weird word in Hebrew. It's not the common way that's used. The word, obviously, to sell or selling or to be sold, that's a common word. It's used all over the Old Testament. But there's another word in the Old Testament, another word in Hebrew, that is most often used. This is a very unique, different word, and it's only used one other time in all of the Old Testament. So there's these details, how much money and being sold with this very weird, specific word. Maybe Esther's onto something, even though she's not literally in slavery. Maybe she's onto something. They've been sold into slavery. And she continues with her request when she says this, if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, if it was just slavery that you were after, O king, listen, I would have kept quiet. If Haman only wanted to to put them in slavery, and, and, and slavery was our, well, we've done that before. Our people have done that before. Listen, I wouldn't have said anything. Why? I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Now, this word disturbing is also a really weird word in the Hebrew. And it actually kind of loses a bit of its luster in the NIV. And so I want to read it to you in another translation in the ESV. And I think, I think you're going to see kind of what's going on here when we do that. In the ESV, it says this, If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. So instead of disturbing in the ESV, they use the word loss. Now, if you have a Bible, or if you're using the Pew Bible, you're going to see in that verse, there's actually a little footnote. There's a little A or a little B, and it's going to bring you down to the bottom of the page, and it's going to give you an alternative translation to help you understand what's going on, because it's a very weird phrase in, in the language. So they're trying to help you kind of grasp what's going on. So in the footnote... If your Bible has it, great, you'll see it. It definitely, I've checked, it's in the Pew Bible. There's a footnote in your Pew Bible. And it'll it'll say this. This is another alternative option they give for this passage. It says, but the compensation our adversary offers cannot be compared with the loss the king would suffer. So what many commentators understand it to be is something along this line. Listen, king, our servitude, It is of value to you, and I wouldn't ask you to take a loss on that. If you were just going to put us in slavery and that was going to build value to you, well, then who am I to to rob you, O king, of us as slaves? But, by implication, if you kill us, you get nothing. You will actually lose. There will be a loss that will happen. And so listen, uh, king, I... I wouldn't say anything. I'd I'd never want you to come and and take a loss on a deal. But listen, man, if you kill us, you come away with nothing. The compensation, our adversary, and again, it's all this like cost analysis sort of uh, uh, language. She doesn't go with the, I'm your queen, I'm cute, aren't I lovely, will you save me? She doesn't go that route. She goes with the whole like cost analysis you know, net worth, net profit kind of, kind of a thing. Let the compensation our adversaries offers. It wouldn't be compared to the loss the king would suffer if we were killed. I would have kept silent if it were. So why is she framing it this way? Doesn't it seem a little odd? 
I would think she would go with the whole pretty, pretty princess approach, right? I'm your damsel in distress. Uh, you could save me. You know, I'm, I'm in a, I'm, my people are about to die. Will you be the big, strong hero, and will you save us? Instead, she gets into this whole, like, compensation and loss and, like, listen, I'd keep quiet. You can enslave my people. That's fine because I'd never want you to take a loss, king. But we're sold into slavery here. And again, not, they're not literally in slavery, but this is how she's framing this whole thing. You're going, what, what are you doing, Esther? What, what is going on here? The question she asks is, what will you gain if you kill the Jews? What are you really going to gain here? Because I'm going to argue you're actually going to lose. But the bigger overarching request she has is, we are slaves, what will you gain if you kill us? And then, and then that's it. That's, 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 that's the request. That's it. What will you gain, O king, if you kill us? If it was just slavery, like, just keep us in slavery, that's cool, I'll keep my mouth shut. I'll let you, I'll let you into slavery. I'll let us keep you into slavery. I wouldn't say a word. But what are you really going to gain if you kill us? What will you gain if you kill the Jews? Let me borrow one, to make my argument a little stronger, let me borrow one uh, one verse from the next chapter, in chapter 8. I promise whoever's preaching chapter 8, I'm not stealing your thunder here, but I'm stealing one verse. I'm just stealing one verse because I need to make my point here. In chapter 8, now, by chapter 8, Haman is now killed. At the end of chapter 7, that's what we're dealing with today, Haman is killed. He's impaled, he's killed, he's put up. That's good. But the problem is, is that the law is still on the books. So she got Haman, she got the enemy killed, and yet she still now has to deal with the law. Because the law is still intact. So she makes a second request to the king. She's saying, king, we got we to do something about this law. What are we going to do about this? And this is how she ends her request in chapter 8. She says this, For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How, how could I bear it? How could I bear to see disaster fall on my people? Okay, now. Where have we heard all of this before? Let me lay it all out for you, right? Esther is a story of someone who is sold into slavery, gains a royal position, forms a personal relationship with the ruler, and advises him in such a way as to save their people. You have language of sparing life, allowing slavery in order to spare life because there's nothing to gain from it, and not bearing to see disaster fall on a loved one. You have someone who's willing to lay down their life. Where have you heard that story before? It's the echoes of Esther of the words of Judah in the story of Joseph. Esther is a retelling of the Joseph story. Someone who is sold into slavery, gains a royal position, forms a personal relationship with the ruler, and advises them in such a way to save their people. Now hear the words of Judah. Flip over to Genesis chapter 37. We ask, why, why would Esther frame the whole conversation? This is her big moment. She's about to make her request. Why would she form it this way? Again, you'd think it would be the damsel in distress argument, and yet no, she profit, loss. I'd keep my mouth shut if it was just slavery, but you're, you, what, what are we going to gain, oh God? What are we going to gain, oh king, if, if you are there? Look at the Joseph story. Look at the words that are used. In Genesis 37, we read the story of Joseph being sold as a slave. 
And in Exodus 37, starting in verse 26 and 27, it says this. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. Remember that one weird Hebrew word for being sold? And we said there was one other time in all of the Old Testament where this is found. Right there. There it is. Come, let's sell him. So even using that word would be like, that's a weird word. Oh yeah, it's the Joseph story. Because that's exactly what happened to Joseph. And look at her reasoning. Look at, look at Judah's reasoning for sparing Joseph's life. Jude, Judah wants to spare Joseph's life here. And look at his reasoning. <clears throat> what will we gain if we kill our brother? It's a profit loss analysis. Judah uses this uh, time to convince his brothers not to kill him. Judah is actually willing to stay silent about Joseph's servitude if it means saving his life. And what does Esther say in chapter 8? If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not compared to the loss of the king. It's the same reasoning. It's the same language. It's the same situation. You'd be reading that, you'd be like, this, this is Joseph. This is, she's quoting and using Joseph. Oh yeah, and remember in Esther 8, when she makes her final plea to the king, Right? She says, oh, for how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? Well, that comes a little later in the Joseph story, if you remember. At the end of the story, Joseph, who now rose the ranks to become a right-hand man to the king, advising him in a way to save his people, at the end of the story, a disguised Joseph confronts his brothers and sneaks a cup. If you remember the story, he sneaks a cup into his younger brother, Benjamin's sack, as a way to kind of set him up. And when it's discovered, Benjamin is sentenced to lose his life to slavery. But someone comes to Benjamin's rescue. It's Judah. He comes again, a second time. You see, Judah remembered the day that they sold Joseph. He remembers that his father Jacob with Rachel, has two sons. And Rachel was the, was the favored one, the, the one where the line would come from. She, had, she and him have two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And so this is what he says. He said, Jacob, Jacob said to us, this is Judah's words, Jacob said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them, Joseph, went away from me. If you take this one, Benjamin, from me too, and harm comes to him, you will, bring you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. Judah remembers his father. Judah remembers that he has two sons with Rachel, the chosen one, the chosen line. Two brothers, Joseph and Benjamin. Judah got Joseph saved by the skin of his teeth, we, we, got him, we got him out. He didn't die. We had to keep silent to get him to slavery. But my father lost him. We can't lose Benjamin too. We can't lose the other brother. Judah can't bear to see that happen again. And so he, he sticks out his neck for Joseph, but now he's willing to give up his life for Benjamin. Look at what it says next. Again, Judah speaking. Please let me remain here as your slave. 
in place of the boy, in place of the boy, and let the boy return to his brother. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. It is an exact quote in the Hebrew from what Esther says to the king. The exact same quote. It's the echoes of Judah, the words of Judah from the story of Joseph. A Judah who knows his father has two real sons. A story of Judah who will keep silent in order to have Joseph go into slavery, in order to spare his life. But then when Benjamin comes along, he says, I can't let this happen again, and he will give up his life. He will lay down his own life, Judah will, in order to save Benjamin. Because I can't bear to see the misery that would befall on him. And this is the exact same language, the exact same words, the exact same scenario that Esther finds herself in. Judah is willing to lay down his life to save Benjamin, and then Esther literally quotes quotes Judah's words in order to save the Jews. It's the echoes of Esther are the words of Judah in the story of Joseph. Now the question becomes, why are the two stories linked? What is it about Esther's story? What is it about Judah's story in Joseph that prompts Esther to want to mirror what is going on in that one? Well, to answer that, we need a little bit of a history lesson. So brace yourselves. Here we go. (laughs) We need a little history. Now, the 12 brothers in the Joseph story, the sons of Jacob, they become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? These 12 tribal states make up God's unified nation who settle in the promised land. I I brought some visual aids to help, all right? So don't say I didn't uh, do anything for you, all right? So they are the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 brothers, Benjamin's included, Judah's included, all those brothers, right? They eventually move out of Egypt. They eventually move to Egypt, right? They're enslaved at some point. They get out and they move to this promised land, But eventually, this united nation of Israel splits into two separate kingdoms. Now, the one above is the kingdom of Israel. That's the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom retains the name Israel because it's made up of most of the tribes. Ten of the tribes uh, form a new nation, a new kingdom, the, the, uh, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. So they feel like they get to keep the name, right? It's like, there's ten of us. We get to keep the name Israel. So we are the kingdom of Israel. Whatever you guys are going to do, you've got to pick your own new name. Right? We're Israel. Okay, cool. So the ten tribes go up, and they all settle it out, and they are the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Now the southern kingdom then is dominated by one major tribe, the tribe of Judah. It's a big tribe, big tribe of Judah. They basically take over the whole southern kingdom. That's theirs. And that's why they call themselves Judah, because that's them. We are Judah. We're big. We're powerful. We're the biggest. We are going to be that. You get to keep the name Israel. That's cool. We're going to name ourselves Judah, because that's who we are. So the kingdom of Judah, the tribe of Judah, comes down and occupies the southern kingdom down there. Now, throughout the book of Esther, we are told that it's the Jews, the Yehudim, who are being threatened. 
Now today, when we say the word Jew, we mean the entire people group. Today, when we say Jew, we mean everybody, right? The Jewish people established by God. But that's not what the word Jew meant back in Esther's day. In Esther's day, if you look at the Old Testament, starting with Genesis, and you go all the way through, the word Jew is never used. Have you ever noticed that? The word Jew, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all the way through, the word Jew doesn't exist. They're always called, uh, they're always called the Hebrews or Israel, but they're never called Jews. It only begins to appear in the time period here in Esther and in earlier parts or later parts of 2 Kings, once the kingdom of Judah is established. The Yuhadem didn't mean God's people in general back then. The ten tribes of the northern kingdom, they weren't called Jews because they were from the kingdom of Israel. They were not Jews. It was only the southern kingdom, the Judahims, the Jews, who were being referred to. That's who Haman wanted to kill. He wanted to kill everyone from the nation, the kingdom of Judah. If you're from Buffalo, you're a Buffalonian, and if you are from Judah, you are a Jew. So Haman actually has a very specific people group in mind that he wants to destroy. When Israel split into two and the kingdom of Judah was established, maybe if you've been doing the math here, you might go, wait a minute, I thought there were 12 tribes of Israel. Ten go up to the northern kingdom of Israel, and Judah takes over the southern, Judah the tribe takes over the suburb. That equals 11. Where's the last tribe? Good question. This tiny Tagalog tribe actually did come with Judah. Can you guess who it is? Benjamin. Benjamin actually goes, this little tribe of Benjamin actually goes and joins with Judah. The tiny Tagalog little tribe that was so small it wasn't even considered in the naming rights. They just called it Judah with kid brother Benjamin tagging along the runt brother who was thrown in, made up the kingdom of Judah. Now, who were Mordecai and Esther? We're told, chapter 2. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. That makes sense. So yes, I'm a Jew in that my nationality, yes, I come from the kingdom of Judah, but I'm really a Benjaminite. That's really my identity. That's who I am deep down. We've got friends on our street uh, that come. We actually have a little, uh, uh, we have a little UN nation on our street. I love it. We've got people from all over the world living on our streets, and we do block parties. It's just the best. We bring out these food, and there's just foods from all over the world. And we've gotten to know our neighbors from that. And when you talk to them, even though they will say, yes, I am an American, They will say, yes, I have my papers, yes, I've got my car, or whatever it is, yes, I've got all that stuff there. So yeah, technically, yes, I am an American. But they don't consider themselves Americans. That's not their identity, right? They're they're not cooking burgers and fries to our block party. No, no, they've got got a, a homeland. Their identity, who they are deep down, is rooted somewhere else, even though you, you can call me an American, and yes, that's technically true. Who I am deep down is somewhere else. 
Your tribe was everything to you. So yes, I guess, you. yes, I am a Jew in that, yes, I am in the kingdom of Judah, but I'm really a Benjaminite. And of course, Esther is Mordecai's cousin, so they both share the same national and tribal affiliation. Haman wants to kill the Hudamites. He wants to get rid of the nationality, these remnants of the largely the tribe of Judah. And even though Benjamin are Benjaminites are technically part of the kingdom of Judah, they are really Benjaminites. They are a distinct people. Esther doesn't necessarily have to do anything. She could remain silent and possibly skirt. Maybe some of the people that she knows, they could kind of claim, uh, you know, Benjaminite blood, and they, maybe they could skirt around it. At least for her in the palace, she has enough. Nobody even knows her nationality. Maybe, maybe she could just keep quiet. It's not really even technically my people. It's the Judites. We're just the kid brother. What kind of a difference would we make? Oh, no, actually, and she even says this in more, well, it's not really that safe, king, it's, not really, it's, it's really not that safe to go before the king. So, you know what? I, I might just stay silent on this one. It's not even really my people. But Mordecai tells her everything that happened. He tells her the exact amount of money Haman promised to pay for the destruction of the Jews. And then he warns her, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you, and here's how, notice how he says it here, you and your father's family will perish. It's like he's saying, Esther, God's going to save the tribe of Judah. We know this because he promised that someone would come from that line to save us all. But you, something about you and your father's family the Benjaminites will perish. Esther, remember. Remember what happened. Remember all those years ago. And Esther remembers Judah and uses his very words. Esther's entire ancestral heritage the line of Jacob and Rachel, her forefather Benjamin and uncle Joseph are both saved by Judah. Without Judah, Esther and her father's family line would have perished. And now a 10,000 talent debt is on the head of Judah's family line. She could have only thought about her own interests and sensibilities and reckoning, but instead, Esther the Benjamite calls them my people over and over and over again. No, no, these aren't, this isn't just, this isn't just the tribe of Judah here. No, these are my people. We're all in this together because we're God's people. I don't care what tribe I came from. I don't care what distinction, I don't care what technicality of am I a Jew or am I not a Jew? Is it Judah and not the Benjamites? I'm not playing those games. They are my people and I will not stay silent because I remember when Judah saved me. Whew. And you know where I'm going with this, don't you? It's the echoes of the words of Judah and the story of Joseph, but it's the echoes of another story. 
It's called a band up. Let's conclude here with this. Because someone from the tribe of Benjamin, or someone from the tribe of Judah has come. And we are like the Benjaminites in the story. The first story, we're small, we're insignificant, slaves to sin, owing a debt we cannot pay. And then the Lion of Judah comes. And he lays down his life in our place. And now we are like Esther in the Esther story. Place in a position to forgive other people's debts, to lay down our lives because our Judah did it first. And the question is, will we do it? Because we have a Judah who laid down his life for us first. Jesus tells this story. Someone asks him, hey, um, how many times should we forgive someone? When someone has a debt, that they can't owe. When, when, we owe when, we, when they owe you a debt and we've got to forgive them, how, how many times should we do that? And Jesus tells them a story, a parable. In Matthew 18, therefore the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed how much? 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all he had be what? Sold to repay the debts. At that the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now, if you're from Galilee at the time, and you know your Bible backwards and forwards, and Jesus goes, oh, let me tell you, how, how many times should you forgive uh, your neighbor? Let me tell you a story of a man who owed 10,000 talents, and he couldn't pay it, so he's going to get sold into slavery. They would have gone, oh, Jesus is talking about Esther here. We, we know this story. Okay, Jesus, tell me, what does the story of Esther mean? What is he going to do? But that servant, he went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owned him a hundred silver coins. And he grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into pit prison until he could pay off the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. This man was unwilling to risk his own interests, sensibilities, and reckonings, despite the fact that someone canceled his debt first. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, I said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Friends, what debts do people owe you? What names come to mind? Maybe someone has wronged you. Maybe it has, was a comment long ago that you never forgot. Maybe someone hurt you deeply. 
and the question becomes the question Esther asks, the question that Judah asks, the question that Jesus asks is will you lay down your life to cancel the debt? Will you risk your own interests and sensibilities and reckonings? Will you remember that your Judah laid down his line life first? And then what are you going to do? It's appropriate that today's a communion Sunday. If you've got your communion element, grab that. Because on communion, we remember the Lion of Judah who came to lay down his life in our place. We are the Benjaminite in the story. Small, insignificant, run of the litter. And then Judah steps in and says, no, no, take me instead. Take me instead. So if you pull off that top, let's remember the sacrifice, our Judah, our Lion of Judah, sacrifice for us, lay down his life so that we may go free. The body of Christ broken for you. And now we've sit in Esther's shoes and in Esther's place. We are all put in positions, royal positions in our lives to be willing to stick our necks out to forgive the debts of others. 10,000 debt was on our head and now it's on other people's head. Debts that probably they will never be able to repay you back for. And I'm not talking money. Will you cancel their debt too, remembering the blood of Christ, your Judah, shed for you? It's the blood of Christ. Jesus, you are, you are the one. You are the one we've been waiting for. Lord, we can't pay back the debts that we owe. And so you gave your life for us. Now in your spirit, will you help us do the same for others? Will we remember our Judah? and then stick our necks out like Esther and call them my people, my brothers, my sisters. Your debt is paid. Because I can't bear the misery, just the sight of the misery that would fall. Lord, we thank you for who you are and we thank you for what you've done. Help us to be like you. In your name I pray.